Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection. Today we're talking about physicians' personal experience of illness and what impact those experiences might have on our interactions with patients, including the possible benefits in terms of being more empathetic or connected to patients, as well as the drawbacks. In the example that a clinician with personal experience with a health condition makes assumptions based on their own experience or prematurely closes off a diagnostic consideration. I'm thinking here of a range of issues, including depression or anxiety, infertility, or even when clinicians themselves have undergone procedures, and how we might unconsciously superimpose our own experiences, wishes, or worries on patients. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ, here as always with Tom and Navjoit. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, Yeah, I'm Tom Dolan. I'm a GP and a clinical editor at the BMJ as well. And I'm excited for the second half of the episode, as well as the first half, but I've I've got very exciting gout updates to to bring everyone. Nice guidelines, urate-lowering therapy, and oysters and caviar. Excellent. Excellent. On the eve of a new king seems appropriate. And hi, Navdroit. Hi, hi everyone. My name's Navjot Lada. I'm a GP and a clinical editor at the BMJ, and I'm excited about both of those segments. Great. So, you know, this this is a topic that has been kind of um, on my mind for a while. Uh, you know, as we kind of go through our own life experiences. And have encounters with things personally, with family members who might be getting older, or indeed with young children. Um, I've noticed that kind of experiences that I've witnessed or been a part of in my own family might be influencing or could be influencing how I'm thinking about patients when they come into clinic. You know, if they have a certain constellation of symptoms that I've seen before in one of my kids, oh, it's really easy to think that that's what it is. Or if you have, you know, a personal experience with um, uh, an illness and you remember very clearly how you felt about it, perhaps we're making assumptions about how a patient might feel. At the same time, it could help us be more empathetic. Um, does does that resonate for you at all, Tom? Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is that as, as we reach middle age, <laughs> then we, we're so more experienced in, in um, things that go wrong with, with well, I'm I'm talking about myself here, not, not you two. Um, things that go wrong in my my own body and uh, and those around me. Um, so yes, I think that that does. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering. You know, lots of patients like to see the the more experienced, perhaps older GP, don't they? And I wonder if there, there, there's something about the life experience that you would assume someone a bit older has had that would make them a better doctor. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Navjoy? Has this come up for you at all in your practice? Yeah, definitely. Although I have to say, I often have experienced it in <laughs> with a more negative framing of things I haven't experienced and feeling mm. like that I'm less legitimate as a result. So um, I don't have kids and I've never breastfed. I've never been pregnant. So um, consultations where, you know, I don't know, thinking about talking about nostalgia or... Um, you know, during breastfeeding or um, problems with breastfeeding. I mean, these are the examples that spring to mind where, you know, I kind of have learned like, you know, what to cover in that consultation. But 
I, I can imagine that, you know, as a patient in that sort of situation, you, you know, it, it must be so nice to to see a, a GP who can just really relate and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, I've experienced that or, you know, and, and it's horrible, whatever. Um, I, I've often felt maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, that, um, you know, I'm sort of doing a disservice to patients. So that's definitely one way I've come at it. But also the other ways that you're describing, Jenny, where, you know, you've experienced something and yes, you can be more empathetic, but there can sometimes, in my case, be a tendency to kind of overlay my experience onto um, patients. And that can be difficult when you're, you know, as a healthcare professional, are experience of navigating the healthcare system and um, understanding a disease process, for example, can be quite different to a patient. So I think that um, can, yeah, that sort of level of empathy can have its benefits, of course, but might also, um, yeah, as you've pointed out, have some pitfalls too. Yeah, absolutely. I had you know, a recent experience with one of my children needing to go to the hospital in the middle of the night and it certainly put a different slant on how I saw, you know, other people with the same constellation of symptoms. And you, I, I totally hear what you're saying about this tendency maybe to put either our own anxiety or our own kind of um, experience of something onto a consultation, um, potentially at the risk of closing off, um, you know, an open-minded sense of inquiry or curiosity, like moving from a um, place where you are like making assumptions about what's being experienced and I know what that's like to a more um, potentially helpful a line of questioning, you know, what is that like for you where you can elicit patients' own kind of experiences and reactions? Well, to help me think through this and to touch on a little bit of the evidence around the way that our own experiences of illness may or may not impact encounters with patients, I spoke with Catherine Hall. She's a GP at the University of Otago. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, with expert medical legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Well, thanks 
thanks, Jennifer. Uh, my name's Catherine Hall. I'm a physician down in Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, it's quite cold down here, but we have warm hearts. Uh, I work as a senior lecturer in the general practice and rural health department. I'm also associate dean for medical admissions at Otago University. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And so we're talking about the way that personal experiences of illness or um, or as being a carer for a friend or a family member with an illness can impact the way that we as GPs can approach or might approach patients. So I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on um, what are some of the ways that a personal experience of illness uh, in a clinician or a clinician's life can change the way that we might approach a patient with possibly the same illness? Sure. So this goes back to some research work I did with a wonderful summer student back in 2016, Jess Michael, and with a couple of other colleagues in the department here, uh, Chris Jay and Jess Young. And we were interested in looking at how the decision-making patterns of GPs altered with serious illness. And what we found very clearly from that study is that by being a, a patient, GPs felt they, their empathy was substantially and profoundly enhanced to generally the benefit of the patient. You know, there's a little few wee caveats to that, but generally it was viewed as a really good thing. Conversely, those GPs who had never been unwell couldn't really get the point. They went, nah, I don't really think being a patient would make any difference to my, my practice. I think I'm... Most of them said something along the lines of, I think I'd do okay, or I'm a really good doctor anyway. Um, and I just don't think it would make any difference, to be honest. Um, yeah, that was fine. That was their honest opinion. Um, but there was quite a wide divergence um, of their opinion about how it might have changed them because we asked them about this first before we gave them four clinical vignettes to, um, to, to, to look at. And then we... Uh, did a thematic analysis of their answers. So we wanted to see what they said first and then look at what they actually did with these vignettes. So what we found with the GPs who had had an illness was not only they tended to engage with the emotional sides of uh, a consultation or, you know, this vignette, well, they also tended to think of more broad and a greater variety of solutions to the problem. So they, it expanded their decision-making. Um, and they also took on the role of advocacy more thoroughly and with much more energy than the doctors who didn't have an illness experience, which was really interesting. There was nothing in the literature to make us suspect that was the case, um, apart from some literature which certainly did indicate that empathy has changed. Although the million-dollar question is how do you measure empathy? I mean, it's self-reporting, you know. <laughs> if someone can tell me where the empathometer is, please send me one. <laughs> I'd love to have one. Exactly. Um, so, so, you know, it, it actually changed more than just empathy. Um, they, I think what they, they ended up ha having was a much more profound knowledge of what it meant to be a patient and in all its glory and inglory. And in doing so, 
they were, became aware of this wider manifestation of what medicine and the practice of medicine actually entails. Things like, you know, the political and cultural determinants of health, which, you know, can pass one by if you're just focusing on strictly clinical biochemical stuff. So it, it, it had a profound effect. There were obvious marked differences in their decision-making patterns. On a related note, you know, a couple of us on the Deep Breath In team have talked a bit about, you know, and as a specific example, the way that, you know, before we had children of our own, we might have been asked in a practice setting to give advice to parents on specific questions regarding child raising or specific kind of children's behaviors or developmental stages. Um, and we've said afterwards, wow, you know, like we had no idea what we were talking about until, <laughs> until we had children of our own. I wonder on a related note, um, what your thoughts are on the extent to which personal kind of life experiences um, may or may not be necessary to give kind of high quality advice to patients or when those might be helpful. Um, I smiled when you talked to me about does being a parent make a difference? Um, when I was pregnant with my own first child, uh, my first son, I had a friend who's a psychotherapist who very wisely said to me, the world is divided into parents and non-parents and the non-parents don't know it. And that is just so true. It is such a well, watershed moment. Um, and I always say to the medical students, you know, who say to me, what do I have to do to be a good doctor? And I said, first of all, you have to be a patient and you have to be a parent. And they look really disappointed at that answer because what they want is they want that textbook, that magical textbook that's going to teach them everything they need to know about medicine. And they don't have to go anywhere else or do anything else. Just read that one textbook and I can't give that to them, obviously. But... And, you know, from my ancient medical history background too, because, you know, that's my favourite, favourite go-to happy place, um, Aristotle did say, you know, you don't find wise people who are young. You know, they can be knowledgeable, but they're not wise. You learn wisdom through experience. But we can't be wise in everything. And I think if you just admit that is to the person, that actually goes a long way because you're creating a bond there anyway. Um, and but it is terribly it, 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 it is terribly um, <laughs> sobering when you think back to how you treat your paediatric patients prior to becoming a patient there's some really excruciating moments I can think of where I think oh my god why did I ever do that um, <laughs> so I know exactly what you mean <laughs> yeah um Shifting gears just a little bit, I'm also interested in thinking with you a little bit um, about whether these kind of personal experiences of a medical problem, in particular, I'm wondering about the way that our own experiences might prematurely narrow um, a differential or whether it could lead us to assume that the patient is experiencing something similarly to the way that we did or um, even assuming that they have the same range of emotions around that topic as us. And so I wonder if what you think about that as kind of, or those as potential risks. I, the short answer is yes, there are risks and they've been well documented in the decision-making literature. So, so there are a number of known biases and you've already alluded to one of them, which is premature closure. 
And one of the biases that can cause that to happen is another bias called uh, emotional salience. Now, emotional salience refers to the likelihood of a, a diagnosis coming to mind because it's associated with a really strong memory. And, and the strongest memories are usually negative ones, they're ones of guilt, shame, anger, rather than confidence, joy, happiness. We just prime that way to actually give ourselves a pretty hard time. And doctors are te perfectionistic creatures, so we tend to do it even more than the average person. So we tend to recall the things that made us feel shameful or guilty or angry or upset much more easily than the things that made us feel good. Um, and that easy recollection also rubs into another one called recollection bias. That easy recollection because of the strength of the memory, um, there's a number of different recollection biases. So emotions, emotional salience sort of nests beneath this recollection bias. Uh, that can make us feel like that diagnosis is more likely than it really is because it pops into mind so easily. Now, of course, if you've spent months yourself going through, say, a cancer diagnosis and chemotherapy and all the other stages, of course, you know, somebody comes in, let's say you had bowel cancer and somebody comes in with abdominal pain, you're not going to forget that you had bowel cancer, you know, that's going to be sitting there. And yes, that is a, a fairly common diagnosis. But if your patient is, you know, a six-year-old you do with pain in the right iliac fossa, you might just have to unpack and bracket that to one side. Um, and that was what, actually one of the concerns in that paper that I did with the doctors who didn't, didn't have um, an illness. The doctors who hadn't had a serious illness were, did express an anxiety that if I had had that illness, it might distort my decision-making. There was, though, in the doctors who, who had had an illness quite an appreciation that they had to be careful not to fall into that trap. It's not that they already worked that one out for themselves without having to do a PhD in the subject like I had to. Um, yeah, that they could actually work out that they needed to bracket that and be careful to realise that their experience was not the same as, even if it was the same diagnosis even, their experience is not the same as the, as the patients. They had to allow for that space and room in the consultation for the patient to be able to step forward and communicate what it was like for them. So that was a lot of my conversation with Catherine, and I thought it was really interesting to hear that there has been some research looking into this. What did you make of that discussion? Um, I thought it was very interesting. It made me, yeah, it did jog, jog a number of thoughts or, or, or things. Um, I think th th one of the, the most striking parts was, was you know, what makes a good doctor um you know, to, to be a, a parent and a patient, or patient and a parent, um, it's a very interesting perspective, isn't it? Um, it made me rem remember twenty years ago sitting in a lecture where the the um, it was like the dean of the medical school was saying, "What makes a good doctor? More than anything, you need good clinical knowledge." And he was saying, "Like, <laughs> uh, 
you know, you can be as nice and empathic and, you know, have as good communication skills in the world. But first and foremost, you need to know your stuff and, uh, you know, two completely opposing views there. And, um, yeah, I would say there's, there's, there's probably a middle path there, isn't there? Um, but interesting to hear us say that. Do, do you guys feel I was a bit uneasy with it, I suppose, that. Yeah, I get. I well, I guess I have this anxiety already, which I was kind of alluding mm. to at the beginning. That you know, I'm I'm not a parent, and does that make me a more deficient doctor? Um, I, I don't think it does. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, that stood out to me as well. Something that I was like, mm, I'm not, I'm. I'm not sure if that is a like prerequisite to be a good doctor. I I, I mean I undoubtedly must you know change how you approach con- consultations with with parents and with children. I I don't I, I sort of think it would be naive to think it wouldn't. But I think as as doctors we have to kind of make peace with the fact that there are a lot of life experiences that our patients will have that we don't have, and that's just that's kind of normal and that's kind of part of being a doctor and I guess you know there'll be yeah like can I relate more to patients who are not parents or like trying to be parents or you know all of that kind of stuff so I think uh I think that is an interesting perspective but I I would say it's probably a bit more nuanced than that I would have thought yeah I agree with you and you know, I've I've heard many people actually, you know, repeat that idea that, you know, one of the more important divisions in people around the world is, you know, whether you have kids or not. And I think your point is such a good one, Navjoy, that actually we will never have the whole constellation of experiences, past beliefs ideas around health as our patients and, and, you know, things that may appear to be in common at the surface may actually not at all be helpful in terms of our communication with patients in terms of their values, in terms of, you know, their hopes and expectations around a medical problem. Um, you know, we, all of those experiences, I think we, we read with a different lens. Um, and certainly I think, you know, our medical training itself means that we like read experiences and interpret them differently. Um, when I was at, uh, school, we read, a I did philosophy A level. I did really badly, but, um, but we read a book that the, the reason I did badly, we, we did this book called the view from nowhere, which no one will have ever heard of, but, I just didn't get it, and we had to then write an essay about it in the, in the exam, and I didn't know what to say. But I do remember that it was all about objective and subjective, and like, how can a person both, or a, how can you be both? That's why I didn't get it. I didn't do very well. But <laughs> <laughs> how do you kind of square objective and subjective? And I think that's kind of what we do in in consultations. Um, you know, I think you need to have, to be able to have that part of your brain, which I think she was talking about there, which is, you know, we're going to actually put all that aside and put my experience aside for now and look at your symptoms and, you know, what what do we need to do based on these, you know, being very objective. But if you just do that, then that's not complete. But if you just be very subjective, that's not doing a good service to your patient either. Um, 
And that then made me think of the health anxiety episode and that tip that they had there, which I used last week. And I think it went down quite well, which is, you know, we're going to, we recognize we're going to talk about the fact that you've told me this anxiety, but let's put that aside and let's look at your symptoms as though, um, and, and look at those in a way that we would with any patient, whether they had anxiety or not. There you go. That should have been my essay. Then I might have got a better mark. <laughs> no, but I think I think your um your that that's such a interesting like you know is that balancing that balancing of um yeah like hard clinical facts and lived experience, which maybe I mean one of the things that I mean, maybe this is getting too into the weeds, but like for example, thinking about you know in conversations we're having about things like long COVID uh, and conditions like that where the scientific understanding of things is not that great and where there is this perception that there is a lack of empathy or a lack of understanding from clinicians is um i guess just recognizing the weight that we might place on those two the objective and the subjective and actually how the the limitations of i guess each of those perspectives as well is like sometimes the hard clinical facts or the science don't you know, aren't fully developed or don't support, um, you know, um, uh, might not be helpful for a patient um, or our thinking. Uh, but some equally, sometimes the subject, subjective may loom larger than it probably should. And mm. how we kind of balance all of that, I think is, yeah, is one of the, I guess, part of the science and the art of being, of being a good doctor. I agree. I think one of the pieces of the interview that stuck with me was this idea of kind of enhanced empathy more generally and kind of becoming aware of maybe more broadly what it means to be a patient. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about was kind of, again, moving away from like putting our assumptions aside and really focusing on being curious about the patient's own kind of experience and what it means for them. Um, you know, similar to when we had our musculoskeletal uh, episode where there was so much emphasis really exploring the kind of meaning and impact of, you know, difficulty moving and arthritis on a patient. Um, and I thought that, you know, being really cognizant of putting my own experience or um, a family member's own experience aside and just really trying to ask, like, how does this impact your life? What are your feelings about this? What does this make you feel? What are you afraid of? And just trying to really deliberately take a more kind of curious approach. Mm. Uh, we actually had an article on something like that. Um, it was called the power of caring in the in the consultation um a bit of an unusual one for for the education section but it, it was a yeah a really nice um summary of that um what you took what the interview also reminded me of was our um diagnostic excellence episode and actually a good way to um counter some of these recollection biases and things is to um you know keep track of of you know a cross section of your um, consultations and and look back and and sort of self audit what's happening and to and to um, do all the other things that's in the article and the episode which everyone should <laughs> read and listen. Oh, we should definitely link to those articles in the show notes because I remember them both and they are like super relevant to this topic. Yeah, 
I wondered what you guys made of this kind of discussion around emotional salience and like when something happens to you or when you've seen it, you know, that it becomes more kind of more forefront in your brain. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Get, I, particularly when you've done something wrong, like it's, it, it's, not, it's never that far from your brain, but definitely at least the next patient you see with a similar presentation, you're, you're really um, probably over overdoing it then. Yeah, I'm nodding because same, exactly the same. Yeah. Well, thanks to Catherine for uh, giving us some evidence and further food for thought. And we're going to shift gears now. Uh, Tom, what is the latest on gout? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I don't know where to start. There's so much to say about about gout. Um, uh, well, I've been I'm handled the BMJ's Nice Guideline summary series. So those um, summary articles um, of new or updated nice guidelines often will tend to come through me so recently there was a new guideline which isn't that common for for nice these days they they usually updates Uh, there's a new guideline on gout and it was really useful and interesting and uh, i learned a lot from it from my practice so i thought um why don't we get somebody on from that guideline uh, a gp uh, who's also has a special interest in um i don't know actually he was a GP and he was on the guideline committee. And um, yeah, and it's also topical because, you know, we've got a new king. You know, we all know that gout is a disease of uh, kings and people who attend feasts and eat, you know, rich foods. Isn't that right? Asparagus and the like, right? Yes. Yeah. Does the nice guideline support that? Well, it? well, this is it. I'm trying to set up. I'm trying to generate a bit <laughs> are of. Are you um, going to bust that myth, or yeah, are we going to of... perpetuate it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear. I'm, I'm creating straw straw man. Are we, can we say so? straw man arguments? Um, as I learned in my philosophy A level when I was seventeen. <laughs> um, so anyway, shall we go and listen to this interview? There's lots about um, urate lowering therapy, when to start treatment, how to titrate treatment, um, alternatives to allopurinol. Do you um do you ever prescribe? Would you ever prescribe anything other than allopurinol? That we'll leave that as a rhetorical question, uh, and let's let's get into it and, and listen to the interview um, that I did just a few days ago. Hi, my name's Alistair Dixon. I'm a GP uh, with a portfolio career based in York, working for York Medical Group part of the time, and uh, I have an interest in MSK and rheumatology. I was part of the NICE Scout Guideline Advisory Committee, and uh, I've been asked to uh, come and speak with Tom. Yeah, thank you. It's um, very, very helpful. I, I love this, um, this new NICE Guideline in that it's a, a common topic that GPs can can get into can't we 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 can we can do gout can't we we can we can manage that absolutely um you know it's like anything that is causing pain to the patient um and affecting their quality of life you have an opportunity when particularly when it's the first presentation that they come to you saying what's this and it's so acute the pain and it's so excruciating that you almost can be a miracle worker in that you go i know what this is and we're able to treat it. Do you know it's genetic? It's not your fault. 
um, although you can make things worse with certain aspects of your lifestyle. And it's the only inflammatory arthritis in the world that we can therapeutically cure. And from an NHS England perspective and your um, previous commissioning group uh, perspective, it costs pence to, cheat, to, to treat. It's not millions, so why aren't we doing it? Okay, so and that's, that comes through on the NICE guideline, doesn't it? That um, a big uh, emphasis, I think, is on, you know, at the moment patients aren't necessarily getting the long-term treatment that would help. Um, and, yeah, so tell us, tell, maybe we go straight into the, the clinical stuff then. So what, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? I guess I think we're, we're quite comfortable generally about the acute treatment, aren't we? You know, it's um, colchicine or NSAIDs and, and, and all those issues. But... I think it was a long-term therapy which I found most helpful in, in this guideline. So, yeah, can you go into that a bit more? Yeah, so it's a long-term therapy that we're not really talking to our patients about. People having hyperuricemia, per se, is not an issue. That is why hyperuricemia, by itself, we shouldn't be treating. But if you have clinical symptoms and signs of gout, then you should be treated. Now... The gout guidelines make a very important point that is probably missed by uh, most of us because it's not highlighted very well. And that is, what is the level of hyperuricemia that's important uh, to diagnose gout? Um, and I accept that theorists would say that you should be doing um, crystal uh, work to look at um, the uric crystals in, in the joint, but actually the gout guidelines say it's essentially a clinical diagnosis. Um, and if you're really con uh, unsure, then then refer on. But so do a serum urate level, and if it's 360 or above, then and they have clinical signs of gout, then you can assume that they've got gout. So why 360? Because if you look at your urate levels um, on your path labs, they're much higher than that for until you get out of what is considered normal range. Um, and what the committee decided was that actually it is more appropriate if you're already thinking that this person's got gout and you're doing a serum urate test, then 360 and above is what you should be looking at. So a lot of path labs are going to have to change their levels um, if you're looking for gout. One other thing that um, might be new to some people, because it was to me, was um, I think there's this tendency to say, oh, we won't check your urate levels during an attack because um, they, they may be, you may get as a false negative. Is that right? Um, but you're saying do it now because it's, it's likely to be high. And if it's not high, then do it again once they're a bit better. Yeah, in about two or three weeks time afterwards. So most people will be positive. Okay. Um, okay. That you think have got gout. Um, and if they're not, then as, as we say, repeat. But this comes back to this point of you get a one shot typically with gout of when they present, they might present only one time or one or two times with that acute attack. And then they think, well, actually, I've talked to my friends and, and family um, at home and said, oh, it's your, your problems. You need to educate them mm. straight away that this could be gout and actually it's probably genetic and we can do something about it. Okay. 
I suppose often, sorry, just it's often people go, oh, I'll stop eating oysters and things, and then uh, hope it doesn't come back. And I think we we tend to go, okay, that, that, well, I mean, that, that is a, a reasonable decision to make, isn't it? But but might not be informed. We need to help inform. It's not evidence-based yeah. and informed <laughs> in terms of going to make a difference. So yeah. if you look at the evidence, it only reduces your serum urate levels by maximum 25% doing all, all these lifestyle changes. So let's move on to, to the choice of um, urate-lowering therapy. So I think most people, well, I was surprised to see anything other than allopurinol in, in, in the guideline. Uh, so tell us about that, uh, the, the choice of t- the two treatments. And then I guess the final thing is probably about um, the target, you know, actually, I think there was a debate, or it maybe still is, about whether you do a um, treat target or or just put them on a the, the maximum sort of tolerated dose. What? Yeah, go through those two, and then uh, I think. So, we'll... so the first the first thing I'm I'm going to do your answers in rever- uh, questions in reverse. Actually. Okay. There is no debate according to the guidelines uh, about whether to do treat to target or just dump them on a dose. Um, it is treat to target. Um, and you're aiming for, in the vast majority of patients, less than 360. There are in patients who've got TOFI, um, or if they've got uh, multiple recurrent uh, attacks, um, so sort of pretty much two or three times a month, um, or if they've got chronic gouty arthritis, then you should be aiming for less than 300. Um, does it increase your number of flares? Yes, it increases your number of flares for the first year, and after that, it actually reduces them. So that's what the the data seems to show, and that's what has been reflected in the guidelines. Right, talking about the medication. So there's two ways of of, of, uh, looking at medication. It's sort of what's out there and uh, sort of lovely and new and and very expensive, and actually none of that has been uh, approved by NICE in the last sort of uh, five-plus years. So there was Lizinurad that came out uh, um, with... um, a German company, um, and that wasn't approved by NICE. Um, there's uh, various uh, ones out in uh, Europe which are not approved, and we talk about um, if, if, you're met, if your patient's not responding to allopurinol or fiboxystat, and you've followed all the guidelines, then refer on to rheumatology specialist. Um, but in the vast majority of cases, allopurinol or fiboxystat um, is perfectly appropriate for either patient. The one exception is patients with cardiovascular disease. If they've got significant cardiovascular disease, then the MHRA still advises that you shouldn't use Foboxystat in those patients. If you've got significant chronic kidney disease, then be talking to the renal team if you've got concerns and uh, you're not sure about what to say on the NICE guidance. Um, But we talk about you know, the frail and elderly or those with significant chronic kidney disease, then be reducing your allopurinol dose as you titrate up from 100 uh, milligram increments to 50. Um, we don't think that there's much difference, to be honest, between allopurinol and fiboxystat. Um, it used to be the belief that allopurinol uh, worked up to, you know, dose 300 is effective, but that was in the 80s. And as a nation, we are more Uh, clinically overweight or even clinically obese, and therefore we probably need higher doses. Um, In terms of um, what can patients tolerate, Mike Doherty uh, and his trials in Nottingham have clearly shown that patients with good education can actually 
um, tolerate much higher doses than we thought. So you can push um, up to five, six, seven, eight, even up to the 900 um, with patients if you educate them and you talk to them. Remember that you can't take more than 300 milligrams of allopurinol at one time. So if you're beyond more than 300, then you go 300 at, um, on a morning and then the next dose is either at lunchtime or dinnertime. Um, for boxystat is two doses. So you're either at the low dose or you're at the high dose. Um, so if you've got a patient that you think actually isn't going to want to take the time to titrate up um, and you, you're likely to uh, worry about compliance, getting that achievement, then for boxystat might be better for them. And so it's really talking uh, to your patients about these are the medications, this is what we're doing. Um, the allopurinol will start you on 100 and then in four weeks' time we might knock you up to 200 and then four weeks later, 300. And you'll be doing your relevant um, user needs and serum urate just to make sure that things were okay as you went along. It's all so helpful. I guess the one thing we haven't covered, you know, offering culture scene at the same time when you're starting urate lowering therapy, do you want to just add a sentence about that just so that we'll... we'll... So people worry about getting flares when you're doing the t treat to target and titrating up. Um, and that can be just starting them for the first time on gout lowering therapy, or it can be identifying a patient who's on um, a minuscule dose of 100 milligrams of allopurinol, say, which is doing absolutely nothing to getting you to treat to target. Um, the evidence is based on one one trial that colchicine might reduce the... Uh, um, the uh, frequency of gout flares. And it, I suppose it's based on, therefore, talking to your patients and saying, what do you want? Do you want to be taking an extra tablet? Why don't you? Um, and I, I have various conversations. So some patients be like, yes, 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 yes. Fine, not a problem. Um, so I would say for them, take one colchicine tablet on a morning as prophylaxis um, as you're titrating them up. If they get a gout flare, go to one twice a day. No more than that, because all you do is get more squits and not really any more benefit. Um, so your patient's, you know, quality of life goes down. The key message is, keep going on your allopurinol or your phoboxystat. Don't stop, okay? Um, and that is the key message to get over. Other patients say, I don't want to take any tablets, Alistair. Um, I'll just take the colchicine twice a day for the few days I get the flare, if I get a flare. And that's fine. And, and, and so that's that lovely thing of giving the patient choice and, put, and empowering them. I hope you found that useful too. I thought there's a lot, a lot of um, stuff there which I will take away. Um, any things that, you know, further questions? I, I thought, I mean, absolutely really helpful. And, you know, the point about kind of checking the urate levels is something that I'd really like to understand more. Uh, in particular, I was kind of taught that um, if you were to check uric acid levels in the setting of a possible gout flare, that it might be of uh, less value because if it's normal, then it doesn't exclude the diagnosis. And so I'm really curious about that, kind of what is... Um, you know, it, it, like, 
if it comes back normal, I know he said to recheck it in two weeks, but what if those values are both normal? Like, do we, is, is anything sufficient to rule out the diagnosis, I guess, is a question. And then also, um, you know, to his point about treating to a low target level, how frequently should we be calling people back to recheck their urate levels? Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good questions. I don't know if I've got the answers. I suppose if um, it might be covered your first question a bit in that if the diagnosis is uncertain, then I guess would you would you refer to rheumatology then or, or would that feel, I guess it depends on the, the context, doesn't it? But um, or these days we're always getting email advice or um, electronic advice. So I do that all the time. <laughs> I'm not sure on these things. Um I know the guideline does say, um, and Navjot, you found this, uh, recommend a monthly or, or check a month later uh, when you're titrating doses, uh, which is a lot, a lot, isn't it? I think for, both for a patient and for your uh, your GP team. Um, Alistair did mention that actually we we didn't include it there. We didn't have time to include everything, but what we talked about including the the horse uh, <laughs> the horse doctoring. Um, he did say that yeah we should be we probably could be using a lot more of our primary care team like um pharmacists and and you know the non-gp staff that we have in all our practices these days to do things like titrating the dose um because mm. yeah if, if it's all well for anyone doing it it, it can be quite a lot of appointments uh, mm. particularly if those are gp appointments which may be obviously very precious at the moment you know we talk a lot about overdiagnosis but this is one of the areas that maybe not is underdiagnosed but possibly undertreated with um people on urate lowering therapy or started on u- urate lowering therapy but not titrated and um, particularly if you know with that frequency of um monitoring while having a dose titrated that's quite hard to you know can be quite hard to engage yeah. with i guess was that something you discussed? It was in the it was in the article. Um, they said a third of people with gout, only a third of people with gout receive urate lowering therapy, and only about wow. a third of only a third of those have their urate level managed oh, effectively. Wow. So, and actually, when we think about you know all the all the risks, the long term risks with gout of you know chronic arthritis, and also now increasingly this awareness of cardiovascular risk, that's um, that's a lot of room there for us Mm. to to get better at that i'm also curious what the nice guideline is regarding kind of screening or primary prevention like how often or when should you if ever actually just start checking your eight levels well um that's not i feel like i'm like the spokesperson for the nice guideline (laughs) which i'm not but uh I did ask that actually to the 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 people who wrote this article when we were you know, going through the the commissioning process, um, and it wasn't in the scope of the guideline. I remember them saying that, but of course, um, Alistair was mentioning there that this um, asymptomatic hyperuricemia is is not something we should treat. And uh, my kind of interpretation of that is that probably we shouldn't be screening people because, right. um, well, my bias is that. You know, we don't want to be labeling people with conditions that probably will never happen. But um, and po- possibly the family history is more um, relevant than mm. than urate levels. Yeah, but no, I'm absolutely. Out of my depth now. <laughs> no, I mean we don't. I mean, I've I've certainly never followed a guideline advocating for screening for asymptomatic hyperuricemia. It's more just, um, you know, in light of 
the importance here on urate lowering therapy, it did make me wonder, is that something that we might potentially see in mm. the future? Mm. I think it happens. I think I've heard of it. You know, people going in, oh, I suppose often we, we request tests without much thought and then suddenly, you, oh, what do we do about this high urate level? So, Well, exactly. Uh, I've seen that yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. But I think, gosh, I'm very worried about getting this wrong, but um, I think <laughs> the answer is you don't do anything. <laughs> um. I was, uh, just to bring it back, Tom, to how you introduced this about, you know, um, eating like kings. Uh, and it sounds like that's been kind of a bit de-emphasised because I know my, certainly early in my career, like that conversation with um, someone with gout would often very mm. much focus on like avoiding purine rich foods and maybe it's related to alcohol intake. But um, it sounds like there's much more emphasis on the, the genetic components now yeah yeah and there's a consider what was it consider starting treatment after the first episode mm. which i would never have um done a few years ago yeah i mean then the, uh, never I would imagine, again, this may be my my own biases coming in, but like there is a certain amount of um, shame I think that patients can feel around, you know, um, their own behaviours that might contribute to their conditions, which might um, influence how people engage with, you know, um, services and their GP. You know, if you're going to get a lecture about like don't mm. eat red mm. meat, don't mm. drink beer, then um, that that may, you know, have have a negative impact on you know you you wanting to go back and start your urate lowering therapy so i guess that's something to be to be aware of as well but super interesting update and um i'm definitely making me reflect on my own practice and things i can do differently same for me thanks so much tom That is it for this episode of Deep Breath In. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe so that you can never miss an episode of Deep Breath In. Thanks to our guests this week, Catherine Hall and Alastair Dixon. Thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Jenny. See you next time. And thank you, Napjoy. Thanks so much, Jenny. See you next time. Bye for now.